I'm Caroline Wright, a student here at Johnson, a senior producer on the Present Value team, and I'll be your host for this episode. This is the sixth episode in our 10-part season. If you enjoy the podcast, leave us a review and share it. We're excited to have Mukti Kaire joining us on Present Value. Professor Kaire is the Girish and Jaidev Reddy Professor of Practice here at Johnson. Mukti holds a BS in microbiology and an MS in environmental science from the University of Pune in India, a Master of Management from the Indian Institute of Technology in Mumbai, as well as another master's and PhD in management from Columbia University's Graduate School of Business. Mukti has taught at Harvard and Brown and now teaches here at Johnson, both in New York City and in Ithaca, while also holding a position as a program director at Cornell Tech. Her research and teaching focuses on value construction for cultural goods and is a prolific case author on business issues facing fashion, food, publishing, and broadcast industries. Professor Mukti Kaire, welcome to Present Value. Thank you for having me. A lot of your work deals with the evolution of commerce and culture brought about by uh, digitization and globalization. Before we really dig into the details, could you give us a high-level understanding of how these topics are connected? Sure. So uh, as, as you mentioned, my research focuses largely on business or specifically on entrepreneurship in the uh, creative industries, uh, which are, as you said, art, fashion, publishing, music, so forth. And one of the things that I noticed as I was doing this research is that more and more of the entrepreneurship in these industries now is moving to be online, either through e-commerce, so selling fashion online, or uh, obviously e-books, selling books online. A lot of that is moving uh, into the digital world, and that's that's become more and more interesting because, A, it becomes easier for entrepreneurs to enter these industries but uh, because of the digital platforms that are available, but also, B, I think it's changing the, the very way in which these industries have uh, functioned for many years. And from that point of view, it's sort of interesting to see where these uh, where these entrepreneurs are going and what are the challenges they face uh, taking an inherently uncertain path because a entrepreneurship is uncertain but and risky, but also because these industries have evolved to be functioning in a particular way. And so when you try to change that using the digital medium that it's it remains to be seen, how that'll play out. Excellent. And your work focuses around kind of three key players, creators, producers, and intermediaries. I figure we're going to be talking about them a lot over the next uh, hour or so. Do you mind kind of defining who those are for our audience? Sure. Uh, Creators, it's an intuitive uh, term. These are the individuals. And again, I want to stress the word individuals uh, who create the works of art. And I'm going to use the word art broadly to mean visual art, but also, of course, written books, poetry, fashion, design, uh, all of these. So creators are the individuals who create these works of art that are then brought to the market. Producers are both individuals and firms who actually bring these works to the market because it's rare that an artist will actually directly start selling uh, from his or her studio. It's usually go- The work usually goes through a gallery or something like that. A gallery would be the producer, but the best way to define the producers in this chain and also differentiate them from intermediaries, which is the third set of entities in the in these industries, is to think of producers as those entities that have a direct vested interest or a direct economic interest in the sale of the works that are brought to market. So think again of a publisher. The publisher is a firm that brings together the books of various authors, the creators, and uh, sells them and has obviously a direct economic interest in making sure they are perceived as desirable by the consumers, they're perceived as valuable and therefore um, high economic values placed on them. And so uh, those would be the producers. 
intermediaries, and this is a less intuitive term, I realize that, but intermediaries are the entities that do not have a direct economic interest in the sale of the goods, but they nevertheless play a very important role in making sure that a market is created for these creative works. So think of critics and reviewers uh, going with the books and publishers example. These reviewers are, or entire book reviews, the New York Review of Books, for example, or entire magazines that comprise book reviews are critical to ensuring that consumers get a sort of preview of the book before buying it, but also uh, are critical to explaining these books and placing them in context, making consumers or readers realize why these books are important and worth reading. You know, scholars call them intermediaries because they are conduits of meaning. They may, they are not necessarily the kind of, sort of middleman or middle entity that through which goods pass. They are the middle entity through which meaning and the symbolic value of these creative works pass. These are usually complex things. These are, you know, a work of art or a book is not directly utilitarian. Uh, it's not uh, often directly comprehensible. You have to sort of understand some history. You have to understand the where the artist was coming from, where the author was coming from, and what they were trying to convey to really be able to appreciate these goods and the intermediaries. And again, these can be individuals. These can be the individual critic or reviewer, but they can also be the entire uh, entity. Magazines, uh, award shows uh, uh, can also be considered intermediaries. And I think of them as performing mainly the functions of explaining and evaluating the goods that come to the market, but also endorsing them uh, as being valuable and and of importance. The endorsement comes from, for example, again, award ceremonies and foundations that give out awards that sort of place some of these works at the pinnacle of both symbolic value or cultural value, as well as ultimately leads more readers and consumers to actually consume those goods because they see they have been endorsed by an entity such as an intermediary. Now that we're all on the same page, let's get into some of the details about intermediaries. You have a book that was published in 2017 called Culture and Commerce, The Value of Entrepreneurship in Creative Industries. A major focus and thrust of the book is around the changing role of intermediaries in these creative industries. Can you give us your take on how the role of intermediaries has changed? Sure. Um... I want to first take a quick aside to sort of say also that there's a normative part of this. I don't think the role should change uh, of intermediaries, and I say that at length in the book. Uh, But what has happened is that, indeed, the way they function has changed due to the changes in the way the the world works, in the way entrepreneurship has has evolved. So to take a step back, uh, as I mentioned, these intermediaries are important to the construction of value and the conveying the value and importance of cultural works to consumers. And one of the reasons they exist, particularly important in the cultural industries, is that a consumer knows that a firm, a producer, a firm that is selling the work in the market, has a vested interest in convincing the consumer that this is the best thing ever made, right? And and so consumers tend to discount the claims of discount as in mentally discount and lower the hyperbole in their own mind when they hear a, a seller say this is the best book ever written, for example. And that's why we need these intermediaries as being the, the sort of third-party objective entities that are providing more objective and independent reviews and as, as I said, evaluations and explanations and endorsements of quality of these works that are in the market. And that's, to me, the supposed role of intermediaries. That's the supposed function of intermediaries, which means that intermediaries need to exist independent of the economic interest in the sale of the, of the works. But also it means that because of the explanation involved, because of the endorsement involved, it also means that these intermediaries need to be viewed as credible experts in the field. So you wouldn't trust the explanations or evaluations of someone 
uh, who's not an expert in that area uh, as being worth anything because uh, it's not helping you understand the the work. And I think what is happening is that the new business models, the new intermediaries that are coming up are being almost forced at some level because, and we will talk about this at, uh, and I'll explain this in a bit, but they're almost being forced to lower this sort of bar of independence and expertise that typically has been required, has been a prerequisite almost of being an intermediary in these industries. Can you provide more of a specific example for our listeners of how this value chain works from creator through intermediary to the consumer? Sure. Um, Let's stick with our uh, book publishing example. An author writes a book with or without an advance. Let's, Let's not go in there. But an author writes a book that's usually the fruit of his or her imagination and is this product that, yes, the author hopes will be seen and read by many, but isn't always. And again, I'm, I want to be sure that uh, I'm making it clear that there will be some books that are sort of the product of, oh, the market wants this and so we should write this. But let's take the purest case uh, at some level, which is the author thinks has an idea for a story or a novel and is not really doing market research the way we think of it in the business world to say, will this book sell? It's much more a, a way of, of expressing this idea that the, that the author has. So this book has been written. The manuscript is taken by the author to typically there's agents, literary agents, that will then have connections to publishers or editors at publishing houses to be able to provide th- this manuscript to them for uh, evaluating whether the, the editor would want to publish this. Uh, manuscript. These literary agents, now again, remember their remuneration comes from commission. So if the book gets uh, gets picked up by a publishing house, they get some money from that. So they are, by our definition, they are producers as well, even though they're, they may or may not be a firm as such. Uh, they're not the creators of the work. They do have a vested economic interest in making the book, the manuscript, seem more desirable so that an editor picks it up. And of course, the literary agent is a possibility only usually for more established authors. So a new author may or may not have that and may have to directly approach an editor. The editor at a publishing house is part of a producer entity. A publishing house, of course, uh, wants to uh, increase the sales of the book. The editor evaluates the manuscript. Let's assume the best case scenario, the first editor that the agent or the author approaches accepts the manuscript. And obviously, an editor will edit to a certain extent. And then the the book comes to market through that publishing house. The publishing houses obviously are not just performing the act of printing the book on paper or digitally uh, these days, but are also doing a a whole set of marketing functions for the book as well as the author. They have, authors may have different contracts, but they either get paid something in advance, a flat fee and and royalties or just royalties. Again, it all depends on the publishing house, the stature of the author and, and so forth. But this is how the author has now made some money from the fruit of, uh, fruit of their labor and from their imagination and from the idea that they have put down in the form of a book. The publishing house, as I said, is, is performing various marketing functions. Book tours are a, are a classic example that many of us know. These help build the connection for readers with the author. These help give a preview of the book to readers. But these are all, again, marketing events. These are not necessarily objective evaluations of the quality of the book. That happens when this book is sent in sort of, uh, in manuscript form or what is known as the review copy. Uh, and they, these are sent to the critics, uh, book critics, at places that where the publishing house feels the readers of those uh, outlets will be interested in a review of the book. Of course, reviewers don't review every book that they receive. They they choose to review some. And in an ideal world, you would have an outlet, um, say, again, the New York Review of Books, just as an example, 
where you would have an outlet that would publish both good and bad reviews. You would not have a situation where only books that are considered good by the reviewer uh, would be uh, would be reviewed by the by that outlet and published. Uh, you would have both because, again, the whole idea is not just to uh, construct the value and increase the 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 value of these um, uh, of these books in the market, but also to uh, to help consumers understand what is a good book, what makes for a good book. They, this is the explanation part, uh, the explanation part of the work that a reviewer does. And so, uh, again, a reputable and credible uh, review outlet or a reputable and credible reviewer would have uh, would publish both positive and negative reviews of any book. And readers read those reviews. Uh, and of course, all of this doesn't necessarily happen this perfectly linear way. Uh, there's a little bit of time overlap between when uh, between when reviews are published and when people are able to buy these books, um, and and that's that's natural. But readers re- uh, read these reviews and and make a determination of whether they um, whether they want to buy the book. And uh, and that's how and and it it can be. I mean, again, this is a this is a subjective process. Tastes differ by readers, uh, and it differs by genre as well of the book. So the, uh, there are some genres that almost never get reviewed in uh, in most uh, publications. Uh, those are sort of seen as the uh, these are the entertainment books, so to speak. This is, you know, your romance novels, your uh, pure adventure thriller uh, kind of novels that that almost never uh, get reviewed at the in the same way that uh, that either nonfiction or literary fiction typically gets reviewed. And people have their favorite adventure uh, novelists, and they'll they'll just buy those regardless of what the those books, regardless of what the review says, if there is even a review. But for literary fiction, people tend to readers tend to look for the reviews uh, that the book has received, and that determines uh, to a certain extent the combination of a good review and solid marketing efforts by a publisher tend to determine the volume of sales that the title would have. So that's sort of the the way value is constructed. And the reason we say value is constructed rather than just, just inherent in the book is because, as I said, a book or any other cultural good has limited utilitarian value and much more of the symbolic or meaning uh, value. And people buy these books not because you know they have they are ink on paper and and the paper is valuable but because of the idea that's inherent in them and that idea uh, needs to be sort of decoded explained and conveyed to people especially in in the case of literary uh, fiction which doesn't necessarily have you know a, a, a neat linear plot or or the kind of things that people look for uh, in a story as such, um, and and that needs to be explained much more, and so that's again where the uh, independence and the expertise of these intermediaries comes into play. So if it if they weren't independent, if they had a vested interest in the uh, sales of the book, they have no incentive to write a negative review. They would only write positive reviews, and you know consumers would believe that and and buy the books. Uh, so that that's where independence comes in. Uh, and th- that's where expertise comes in, in the decoding uh, and sort of explanation of these uh, of these ideas in the book. So I think of Vogue or the New York Times as kind of traditional intermediaries in that their entire value proposition is that they're experts and they're objective. But of course, these publications cost money and consumers don't get them for free. Now that the internet age has brought about free sources of content, free sources of commentary, even free intermediaries, what are some of the consequences of that evolution? So um, there's a couple of things that's, that, that are happening with, uh, with the digitalization of the communication medium. Um, one is exactly as you said, 
consumers have come to expect a lot of the content on uh, the on the digital medium to be free, as in they don't have to pay for to read the content. Uh, on the flip side, also, there is this fact that the digital medium makes it very easy for anybody to put content online for people to read. So it's a it's a medium that really frees up the uh, uh, frees up space for uh, for commentary for some of these reviews and evaluations of pretty much anything, not just and not just cultural goods, but we'll stick to the cultural goods uh, for now. And that's that's generally seen as a as a good thing. The fact that anybody can uh, make their make their thoughts uh, visible and express their their opinions and and beliefs um, easily and and for cheap, uh, so to speak. What that has led to is a whole slew of of new intermediaries, right? So we have uh, plenty of sites that are. Uh, plenty of organizations that are enti- that are essentially uh, the newspaper online, and again, at the very base level, that is a great thing that entrepreneurship uh, has been has been promoted by the existence of the digital medium, and that more and more people have a platform on which to uh, voice their uh, opinions and evaluations. What that has led to, though, that this this fact combined with this fact of you know easy uh, creation of platforms and easy expression of ideas, combined with the fact that through a series of of historical uh, reasons, consumers have come to expect content online to be free. This combination puts pressure on the business models of these new entities that are digital only. So let me explain that. Let's take Vogue as as an example, or any other magazine for um, for that matter. We know that there's ads in any magazine. There's ads in a newspaper, and and advertisers pay the newspaper to put those ads there. And the reason advertisers pay, and the reason advertisers pay different amounts to different publications, is because of the different numbers of people that are likely to see the ad in those publications. Again, I'm still talking about the old paper version of Vogue or New York Times. And we know that a subscription to the New York Times or Vogue costs far less than if you were to buy the same number of issues of Vogue at the newsstand. And the reason for that is that a subscription gives a a number to the magazine that they can then submit to the advertisers to say, these are the number of people that will definitely be seeing your ad because they are subscribers. They have prepaid for these issues, which makes our space for your ad that much more valuable. That's how advertising rates are determined. And advertising rates are what subsidize subscribers, right? And that's why you can get a subscription to 12 issues of Vogue for $12 a year uh, as, as opposed to buying one issue at the newsstand for $8 or or uh, $6 or uh, whatever it is. Now, what has happened with the business models online is that if people are not going to actually pay a subscription, the only way to convince an advertiser that there are a certain number of people viewing the viewing this content that the publisher is putting out on the digital medium is through data of how many visitors came to the site. But again, then you go into this whole detail of how long did they spend there, et cetera, et cetera. And that's still historical data. A subscription, like I said, is data about people who have prepaid to see the content, whereas uh, how many viewers came to your site is uh, how many viewers came yesterday or how many viewers came on average based on the data we have up until yesterday. It's no guarantee of what's the, what the future is. And all of this has led to uh, lower advertising rates, uh, which means that, again, there's uh, pressure on digital publications to lower their costs, which has led to two things. One is crowdsourcing of reviews or crowdsourcing of content, at least, and particularly in the case of Yelp, which is a restaurant review site, 
or other such born digital uh, review sites, they have been based largely on sourcing uh, information from lay consumers, so to speak, um, as opposed to the sort of expert food critic or restaurant critic that used to exist at at an older uh, paper publication. Uh, it has also led to, uh, on the other side, has also led to the this business model of augmenting revenues that you have lost because of advertising or, or lost because of no subscription uh, rates. These firms augment their revenues from affiliate revenues, which is basically the, the money you make from embedding a hyperlink to the product. Let's say you've reviewed a lipstick. You've said this is the best lipstick for the year. Uh, you embed a hyperlink to the to the e-commerce site where you can where consumers or readers can buy that lipstick. And again, because of the digital medium, being able to track this when the consumer clicks on that link and goes to the site to buy that lipstick, what you get is a commission on that on that sale, which of course is now, as you can tell, is striking at that very heart of the definition of an intermediary, which is independence or third party objective evaluation and the lack of a direct economic interest. There's nothing more direct than this economic interest uh, that exists if if a hyperlink can take you directly to a place from where the site gets a commission. And so this the the digital medium is making it harder to maintain that independence, economic as well as cognitive, um, and is making it harder to to maintain revenues in, uh, uh, high and costs low. And so the way, best way to keep the costs low is to crowdsource a lot of the content as opposed to keeping people on a retainer who have to be paid more because they're seen as experts in the, in the subject. So I worked in media for the last six years before coming to business school and can say that I'm very guilty of a lot of the things that you described with our affiliate partners. Let's say I'm working for Vogue and I do an independent review on, on lipstick and it's all about how this is the best lipstick out there. I think organizations like Vogue would argue that linking directly to a product site is a value add to their readers. From your perspective, what's the issue here? Is there a line that's being crossed? That's a great question. So I think that as existing organizations, so let's take let's take the lipstick example. Allure magazine used to uh, and still does every year put out a top 10 uh, list of beauty buys as such. And um, when it was in paper, uh, the reader would read the would read the review and decide whether they wanted to buy the, again, the lipstick, let's say, um, and would go out and buy the lipstick, and that was that. Um, Allure didn't necessarily, again, directly make money from that. And directly is the most important, is the operative word here, because uh, obviously Allure depends on the overall health of the beauty industry, because otherwise they're not going to advertise in Allure. And so it's not as though they have no interest in the financial health of the beauty industry. They they do have an interest, but it's not direct. It's not commission-based, let's put it that way. What is happening now, of course, Allure has a website. Allure's top 10 is on that website. There's a hyperlink there. Magazines, uh, as you said, will argue that A, this is value-add for, the cust- for their reader, uh, and B, that especially as a magazine like Allure, has built up a reputation for a very long time as being independent and objective, and therefore has that expert credibility that one wants or one seeks in an intermediary, and that they're not going to throw it away. And in fact, they have made this argument uh, when it was first reported that that these magazines had websites with hyperlinks. In, in a New York Times article, they made this argument that we are not going to throw away our the reputation that we have worked so hard and for so many years to build up just because of a small commission through a hyperlink um, that we are getting. And therefore, this really is, in our case, value add. And 
we can parse that out. We can sort of sit here and say whether we believe that or not. But that's a that's a that's a valid statement, just like what you said. That at face value seems to be credible. My concern, and as you know, I'm an entrepreneurship uh, scholar. My concern is about the new ventures that come up that do exactly this. I'm not saying that all of them are not independent and all of them are are sort of rigging these reviews, but but they haven't had the time to build that reputation. They haven't had the 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 whole history that Allure can point to to say, look, we always separated copy and advertising, or we we had this sort of unwritten rule that separated copy and advertising, and and we uh, and you you can trust us. The new ventures don't have that, and I worry a little bit about what it means that consumers uh, easily accept these these ventures lists or recommendations without pausing to think about what it means when when that that independence is lost because of the hyperlink uh, thing that leads really nicely into my next point uh I personally consume probably an obscene amount of media. I go to about a dozen websites a day. I don't really want to admit how many times I'm on Instagram. I listen to a podcast where I actually think I am friends with the woman who runs the podcast. So what is kind of the inherent danger here in mixing these types of medias and and these new forms that you speak of? You know, I... I at again at face value nothing right more information is always good multiple uh, multiple opinions and multiple viewpoints are always good to have you don't want to be just looking at one uh, source of information i think that's um, that's universally accepted and understood i think um, again as i said with these with the new ventures that are that haven't had the chance uh, to establish a reputation for honesty, credibility, and expertise. It's it's harder for a listener or a reader or a consumer of the, this kind of content to figure out the 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 credibility. It used to be, for example, it's uh, you know it used to be that if you were a, a critic uh, that was writing for the New York Times on whatever the topic was. As a consumer of that review or the critique that you that this person wrote, the consumer had faith that the New York Times had done due diligence on the on the qualifications of this critic uh, to to pass judgment, so to speak, on the on the cultural good out there. Now, when you know, let's say you start a a, a review site, um, it's hard for a reader to understand why they should. Take your word for it. However, the digital medium also makes it possible, just like what you just said, to create a voice and a tone that makes the reader feel at comfortable and at at home with this uh, with this person. Right? You said you had a you listen to a podcast that uh, where you feel you're friends with the person doing the podcast, and and that's again a great thing. It's a great way of connecting. That's still not necessarily uh, an indication of expertise of the person. It can be, uh, and and the person may well be an expert in that field, but it's not all. It's not a given, right? And I think that's where this um, this problem starts to uh, occur, which is that we are all, as consumers, guilty of I think not doing our homework. Uh, on all of these sites or individuals that are providing reviews that are shaping the way we consume cultural uh, goods, and um, and and as an example, essentially take any of the I mean take any of the crowd, so, sites that have crowdsourced reviews. There were scandals and uh, that surfaced in between where it was found that uh, people were writing bad reviews of competitors. Without actually uh, disclosing that they were com- uh, they were competitors, the other thing that can happen is as technology progresses, we don't even know for sure that a human is writing these reviews. So someone with deep pockets can pay technology to create reviews, negative reviews about a competitor, competitor's business or product, and 
And so again, we we don't really know what's going on when we when we aggregate these reviews, when we have uh, when we have late consumers' right reviews. We don't know whether they are experts. We don't know whether they were having a different set of experiences outside of that consumption that were affecting their opinion, etc. Whereas, again, a professional critic, you you can sort of see the number of things they do to maintain objectivity and to uh, to not be uh, swayed by things outside of the actual consumption experience. You can doubt that and you can disagree with that opinion, uh, but it's harder for for a sort of a filmmaker, let's say, to influence uh, A.O. Scott of the New York Times or anyone as an individual reviewer of films uh, to the extent that suddenly they start writing very positive reviews of things that otherwise they would not have liked. But with bots, for example, it's much easier to uh, tweak the algorithm a little bit, make you know, um, and and make it possible to write a whole set of positive reviews. So I, again, I think, I think the consumption of multiple sources of media by itself, or uh, multiple sources of reviews and opinion by itself, is not a problem. I think what what's what is happening is that. With all the information available out there, we as consumers are not doing our homework on the expertise of the person and the credibility of the person behind this content, and, and it, that should be cause for concern. Along this vein, a really fascinating connection that I've heard you make is this lack of discernment that consumers have when reading reviews for things like restaurants or books and, and, and how that transitions into a lack of discernment when it comes to, to news and current events. Can you kind of take our listeners through that connection? Um, so, like I said, if, if we lose our ability to do homework on individuals um, or, or even seeming and firms um, that are online because it's it's too much work. It's uh, it's uh, you know it's easy to uh, it's easy to like the opinions of someone and then be less concerned about where they are coming from, etc. I think we lose our discernment to make these judgments even more broadly. Uh, for the longest time, uh, most people would imagine it's okay to trust uh, a lay consumer's opinion about about a skirt or a meal or something i mean what what's the worst that can happen you're you're making uh, you're making a fashion mistake or you're you're you know eating a bad meal rather than the good meal that you expected and and it's not a big deal life goes on um and so uh while all of this uh was happening the sort of reviewing or the intermediaries migrating online and uh the the business models being such that it affects the independence and or expertise that we expect and require from intermediaries. Um, while all this was happening in the cultural industries where, like I said, a fashion mistake is not the end of the world or uh, reading a book that was sort of not, uh, not objectively reviewed uh, because you know everybody on Amazon gave it two thumbs up and then you, you bought it and it turned out to be useless. It wasn't monetarily or even... Uh, psychologically that big a deal. Uh, but I think what was actually happening as we got more and more used to depending on these you know, free reviews, so to speak, because they, they are next to the point of sale or, as I said, because of the business models, they are uh, they're being put out there with other vested interests. As we got used to that, we stopped asking the question of who exactly is providing this review and how is it and should should I trust it and how is it that I'm getting this review for free? How do I know that this person has the credibility that I would require? And I think slowly um, that percolates into other parts of our life. Uh, if we learn to trust a review of a skirt from somebody that we've never heard as opposed to from an established organization that has been doing this for many years. We learn to trust all of the other kinds of information that are out there, especially when they align with our views, uh, especially when they are easily available, 
especially when they are nicely packaged and and uh, put in front of you. And I think that that's sort of where we uh, we get into this uh, realm that's more about what what today is called fake news. But but essentially, it's about not having the ability to to understand that the source of information is as important as the information itself. Um, and the source of opinion, the source of uh, judgment is as important um, as the actual judgment provided. And we need to check on what the what the vested interest might or might not be. They might not be, and that's that's great. But we we need to be able to build this cognitive ability to to do that much more than just take it for granted that if it's a uh, if it's a site on the website on the internet, it must be it must be legitimate. It seems like, and and I think you mentioned this earlier, but a pillar of the internet age, so to speak, is that all content is open and available to all people. Companies like like Facebook and Google and and even their users buy into that idea. Given this status quo and this kind of entrenched notion that online content is free, what are your solutions for positive change? Like, should I be paying more for online content? Yes, I think um, my solution for for positive change will not be very popular, but it is that uh, we should be, uh, that we as consumers should be more cognizant of uh, of what we are consuming and what and uh, how we are getting that, we should be aware of the fact that that uh, writing a book, painting, uh, creating a painting, writing a review—all of this takes time and effort. We should honor and respect that ability, and and uh, we should want a world where all these creators get paid for the effort that they put into put into creating this content that may that enriches our lives i mean it's not just about uh it's not just about paying these people but we are getting value out of it as well uh so i think yes my first uh recommendation is that we as consumers of ideas content and cultural uh goods should be more willing to pay uh, for that content. And and like I said, this is not a popular uh, concept, but I think we have to be clear uh, that the, the onus is on consumers also. But in general, I am actually optimistic. I think that, that more and more people are willing to at least see that this is a problem. The fact that we have come to a point where anybody with deep pockets can peddle information and or opinions uh, about ideas to a wide swath of the population is a problem, has been recognized by more and more people. Multiple things have come to light that suggest that that consumers are now becoming more aware of the fact that when they are getting things for free, it's not really for free. There is uh, there is a hidden cost to it. And I think more and more uh, consumers now realize that the only way to to not suffer from those hidden costs is to actually have an upfront and clear uh, cost of consu- of consumption. And um, so I am optimistic, but but really, uh, the only solution I I see is is that consumers become more willing to pay for content. The other solution I think uh, is that businesses also in turn need to continue to uphold that sort of uh, you know that this, as I said, there used to be a, there is an unwritten code of separating copy and advertising in magazines, newspapers, etc. And uh, that the temptation is too high in the digital world to ignore that unwritten rule, partly because it's unwritten. Um, And I think uh, businesses also need to step back and say, how can we maintain that credibility? And and of course, there there are regulations that the FCC controls these things and and says that you should be 
you have to disclose interest in any object in any item that is um, that you endorse or promote uh, on or even just feature in your publication or program. Uh, but but again, the proliferation of businesses online makes it very hard for the FCC to keep cracking down on these things uh, and to figure this out. And if consumers became more aware and said, let's let's keep an eye out for disclosures. We want to be sure that people who are endorsing products disclose that they have an interest in it or or clearly disclose that they don't have an interest, uh, an economic interest in promoting this product, then uh, I think consumers do have the strength to bring about that change. Consumption has been a good way of bringing about a change in uh, several business practices. So why not this? Progress will be slower because it actually requires people to change behavior, which is to start paying for content online. But, uh, you know, again, consumers have been willing to pay more for for products that align with their ethical values, whether it is uh, environmental values, social values. Uh, and so I think uh, it's not impossible that consumers will be willing to pay. We just have to agree to pay. So let's say that you're in a new city, maybe you're on a field trip with some of your students, and everyone's looking for a place to eat. And they start pulling out their cell phones and pulling up Yelp reviews. What do you do? I have a, a, a rule of thumb, which I'm sure every uh, everybody has some version of this. I will not go, uh, if I'm looking at Yelp reviews, I will not go to a place that has uh, fewer than fewer than 200 reviews and fewer uh, than four stars. So this is my rule. Everybody would have their own rule. Now, again, I know this is not perfect. Um, I know that, uh, you know, those 200 uh, reviews could have been written by bots uh, and the four stars, therefore, completely made up. And, and I'm I'm going to be stuck uh, with that. I will try, if I if I really knew where I was going beforehand, I will try to uh, to look up what I see, I think of as credible and expert reviews um, for restaurants there, but but it's not always possible. And and this is where you know pragmatism starts to come into play. And and I've been as as you admitted, I've been guilty of of that as well. I'm I'm not able to uh, I'm not able to stick to always looking for the New York Times or the Michelin Guide review of a restaurant and only going there. That being said, again, I feel like there are different things people people want from the consumption of cultural goods, right? There are there are books that I read as you know, quote guilty pleasures. Uh, there are books that I read for pure entertainment. There are books that I read for enlightenment, and there are books that I read for education. There are books that I read for you know enlightenment and education and all of these things. And my bar varies for each of these occasions, right? So for pure entertainment, I am uh, perfectly okay picking up a copy of some book uh, at an airport, not knowing really whether this was well-reviewed. I'm happy to look at the blurbs and say, oh, this looks interesting, I sort of like this genre. I'm I'm happy to take the same thing for for meals, right? There's there's times when I'm stuck and I just you know need a need a slice of pizza. I'm not going to look up the Michelin reviewed pizza for that uh, area or any such thing. I'm just going to go to the first pizza store, shop that I see. So I think I mean again, I uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that these uh, this sort of new way of reviewing and these new firms that exist don't provide a service. They do. There's no question about that. There's value to what they do. I just uh, feel like if we as consumers are not aware of the boundary conditions under which this value is true and, and is, really, uh, is really there, then we start to lose that discernment, we start to lose that ability to make sort of considered decisions about 
what we want. So it really will depend on the occasion. So if I'm stuck, yes, absolutely, I will. Uh, I will either eat in the first restaurant that I see, regardless of what it is, or I'm happy to use my rule of thumb and 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 go with the go with the Yelp review. You have a fascinating background from studying microbiology in India to now coming to Cornell Tech in New York City. Can you tell us a little bit about why you came to Cornell Tech and, and talk about your involvement with the entrepreneurial community there? Sure. As you said, I did study microbiology and then environmental science in India, which is uh, a far cry from uh, from what I'm doing now and, uh, and, and studying now. A couple of ways that I got to studying the creative industries and business in the in the cultural realm. The first was that uh, I've, I've always been an avid reader and uh, an avid consumer of cultural goods. Uh, but more than that, being in the environmental field really got me to got me to see this thing of where uh, I was. Uh, I, I had worked a lot in the nonprofit sector. It really got me to see this thing of where people were who started these not-for-profits in the environmental world were really crucial to that organization. And so if they lost interest or they somehow moved on or the scale uh, grew beyond a uh, point, then what you had was uh, was a very difficult situation where, uh, and, I, and I'd observed this many times, you had a difficult situation where the organization was almost sort of rudderless without the founder. So fine, I've observed this, that's great. I come to my uh, PhD program, and one of the first things I was exposed to was uh, was a theory about, put forth by Al Chandler, a business historian, who basically uh, said that one of the key reasons that uh, corporations in America were so successful and large was that they moved towards a, a, a professionally managed system. So what that means was that uh, his his contention was that owner managers. So the you know in in the example that I gave you about not for profit environmental organizations, it would be the founders. His contention was that owner managers were were likely to want to keep the organization under their control and so you know not grow it as much, whereas professional managers were less personally embedded in this, and I'm paraphrasing him and, uh, uh, considerably here, of course, but professional managers would be more likely to grow the firm because that's what gave them stature and status and, and so forth. Of course, having had that experience and having had those observations, I disagreed with this or at least felt like it wasn't uh, it wasn't capturing the entire reality. And when I spoke with my uh, professor about it, uh, one of the things that came up was maybe that was because I was looking at it in the not-for-profit sector. So, you know, something where non-pecuniary motivations had led to the founding might lead to great passion and zeal uh, from the founder that was the reason for the existence of the organization. And so when the founder leaves or loses interest or something, it's obvious that the other people in that endeavor also lose interest. For them, that sort of passion or vision has gone. And I was in New York City. I got my PhD at Columbia. And I agreed that it might have something to do with the not-for-profit nature of these organizations. But at the same time, I was in New York. I figured there were all these, you know, fashion firms, uh, other creative industries, uh, creative firms around me. Surely, I might see the same thing in these firms, and that's how my that's how my interest in looking at the founders in the in these firms increased. And my dissertation was on ad agencies, uh, and of course, not to mention that it was great fun doing you know research in these industries because you actually got to read about things that that interest you beyond just the beyond just the academic side. And and so that's how I got into this uh, area of looking at entrepreneurs in the creative industries. And then um, when when I started noticing that these industries were being uh, created newly in other parts of the world, other than the U.S. and and Western Europe, so 
the newly developing economies, uh, India particularly, I noticed that a market for Indian art was coming up for the first time in from the uh, 90s onwards. Uh, the fashion industry was growing in India. That's what sort of got me interested in looking at how do entrepreneurs function in the absence of the rest of the infrastructure for these creative industries that exists elsewhere and uh, how those markets are created. That's And looking at the creation of markets and industries in in these contexts early on uh, got me to understand how what you need for a market to evolve and uh, and and I'm still sort of you know looking at it from an entrepreneurial perspective and as I said I um, realized that the digital economy is making entrepreneurship in these industries that much easier and then I hear of a campus opening in New York City which is uh, the, as I said uh, already, the home of most creative industries. It's uh, it's a campus opening uh, that's meant to train pioneering leaders for the digital age, digital being the venue where most of the entrepreneurs in the creative industries that I was looking at were operating. And uh, it was a campus that uh, focused on entrepreneurship. And so I come full circle from Columbia and New York back to uh, Cornell Tech in New York and continuing to sort of see how this plays out uh, because at some level these markets are now being created for the first time in the digital ecosystem um, and how that is playing out uh, in terms of creators, producers, and intermediaries in that system. I've heard from fellow students that you insist that they call you by your first name, Mukti, and that it carries some sort of significance to you, other than it just being your first name, of course. Do you mind sharing that with our listeners? Not at all. Um, so, I mean, the simple reason for saying that is that Kaire, my last name, is harder uh, to pronounce, not just here, even in India often. And so Mukti is much easier. But the real reason is that I'm very fond of my name. It's it's rare even in India uh, for someone to have that name. And uh, I was named that because um, my father, who is a Sanskrit scholar in his spare time, he's a civil engineer by training. I'm the third of three daughters. And he named my eldest sister Pradnya, which is wisdom. Um, my middle sister is Shanti, which is peace. And I'm Mukti, which is freedom. The idea being that when you get wisdom, you have peace, and when you have peace, you have freedom or liberation or salvation, however you want to think about it. So I'm very fond of my name, and I think that's that's part of the main reason. Uh, that's probably the main reason I uh, insist that people call me that. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's been wonderful chatting with you and, and learning about all of your vast expertise in this area. Is there anywhere our listeners can go to learn more about your research and your interests? After having said all this about independence, uh, I don't want to plug my book, but uh, that is probably where I put in a lot of sweat and blood and tears explaining all this in greater detail. Um, and so that's probably the best spot. But um, but otherwise, there's the faculty website at Cornell Tech. Um, and they've written a few articles here and there, but, but the book is probably the one spot where you would get all of it together. Well, Mukti, I assure you that we are an objective platform here at Present Value. We thank you so much for coming on, and it was a fascinating conversation. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. And, um, you know, when I first came up with this idea of complaining about uh, what is happening in the entrepreneurial world in the case of intermediaries, I remember my editor when I was, I was writing the book was like, can you make it sound less apoplectic? I hope I have sort of made it sound less apoplectic uh, now, uh, bringing in pragmatism, etc. But it, like I said, it, it does concern me, but I'm optimistic. Thanks for having me. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. 
This episode was produced by Michael Brady, Chris Alperico, and Harrison Job. I'm your host, Caroline Wright. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz. Music by Poddington Bear. Logo by Pilecci Pomongo. Special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.